We have a special type of prayer that we do here about once a month. It's called a bidding prayer. And the way a bidding prayer works, you may know if you're from a, a higher church setting, is that a leader will say one part of the prayer and the congregation will respond with the next line of the prayer. And the way we have this, we'll have this on the screen is that the uh, regular text will be the leader's words and the italicized text will be the part that you can respond with. And this is a particularly uh, relevant prayer because we're going to talk about politics this morning. And so this is a political prayer. Um, So I I will read the regular text, and you can read the italicized text that follows. Let's pray together. God of justice and compassion, God of Republicans and Democrats and independents, God of the poor and the 1% and the middle class, in the heat of this election year, In the midst of meanness and deception. In the midst of loud speeches and harsh accusations. May those who follow Jesus do the work of Jesus. Let's all say these words together. Holy, loving God, have mercy on your children. Amen. Well, as I mentioned uh, earlier in today's service, we are right in the middle of this special fall series called My Faith Won't Fit on a Bumper Sticker. And today we have reached the uh, perhaps most controversial topic of God and country. My faith won't fit on the flag. We've been talking about the ways that, uh, at least uh, here at Artisan, we express Christianity in a way that we believe is consistent with the orthodox practice and teaching of the church, but with a way that doesn't seem to fit with what we see around us in the culture of church in America. Whether that's the desire to have everything distilled down to a slogan that can fit on a bumper sticker, or whether it's the desire to have a faith that is expressed more by the specifics of our doctrine than by following Jesus, who we serve as Lord. And today, uh, it's about how our faith won't fit the typical expectations that some people might have of an evangelical church when it comes to political commitments and so forth. I want to start out by showing you a few images, and uh, whether they're going to be inspiring or provocative probably depends on your perspective. Um, this first one, I'm going to, I'm going to describe these uh, not because you can't see, but because the people on our podcast can't see. Say hi to the people on the podcast. <laughs> they all just took their earbuds out. Um, pod people, yes, that's what we'll call them. You know, I listen to a, a pastor in Minneapolis, and he calls the people who listen to their podcast podrishners. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, so this is a picture of the Bible um, enveloped in a beautiful, pristine American flag. And the, the next image um, is a, an image of a pin that you might see on a lapel, and it's got two flags crossed and together, um, holding hands almost, if you will. It's the American flag and the Christian flag. Now, if you've never seen the Christian flag... Um, that's, that is the Christian flag, at least in the Protestant world. 
And then the third image, which may be provocative or inspiring, depending on your perspective, is the image of a flagpole that has those two flags on it. And this is exactly uh, how they were arranged at my Christian college right here in Rochester. The American flag is on top, and the Christian flag is underneath. It's pretty interesting. There was once... Um, a not insignificant argument uh, at a chapel service in the college that I attended because the flagpoles that were on the platform that day, one of which was the American flag and one of which was the Christian flag, were not at the right height. Uh, the flag tradition is that you place the one that's most important highest. And there was a, uh, a, a faculty member there, actually, who was incensed that the American flag was not taller than the other flags on the stage, including the Christian flag. So with all these pictures of the flag, it reminds me that uh, sometimes I've been asked why we at Artisan don't have a flag anywhere in our sanctuary, an American flag that is. Um, nobody who, who, who's part of Artisan has ever asked me that. Sometimes people who visit ask me that. Uh, what I have been asked sometimes here by, by people is why we don't sing patriotic hymns on national holidays. And uh, in many churches, of course, both of those things are the norm, that you'd have an American flag in the sanctuary and that you would, on the 4th of July and so forth, would sing lots of patriotic songs that, that do mention God but seem to be about America more than anything else. So why don't we have the flag in our sanctuary and why don't we sing those hymns on national holidays? It's not because we hate America. It's not because we're unpatriotic think that uh, you could talk to anybody uh, who had anything to do with founding this church and probably anybody in the room, and they would say, yes, I do love America. I'm a reasonably patriotic person. The reason that we don't have the flag in our sanctuary and the reason that we don't sing those hymns is because ultimately America, no matter how much we love it, has nothing to do with the gospel that we proclaim the Bible that we believe, and most importantly, with the king that we serve. The song that um, Mike and Mel just performed is called I Repent. It was written by an artist named Derek Webb. He wrote another song called A King in a Kingdom, and one of the lines in that song says, my first allegiance is not to a flag, a country, or a man, First allegiance is not to democracy or blood. It's to a king and a kingdom. See, we Christians are subjects in a kingdom. And that alliance, that allegiance, must take precedence over everything else. When I was preparing this sermon, it became very evident to me early on in the process that I was either going to give a two-and-a-half-hour version or I was gonna, something else was going to have to give, and maybe I could give a 20-minute version. Um, by quick vote, who would prefer the 20-minute version? <laughs> me too, uh, because that's the one I prepared. There's so much to say about this topic. I'm going to try to say the most important things in, uh, that, I, that I have on my heart and the rest of it will have a conversation 
over a beverage sometime, maybe. What I want to do is give you a brief history of the politics of biblical times. Okay, a brief history of the politics of biblical times. It all starts in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Here's what happens. Samuel, the, the eponymous character here, um, was the judge over Israel, the people of God, God's chosen nation. And he became old. And 1 Samuel 8 says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Verse 3, Yet his sons did not follow in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice only. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. My literature friends know that that is called foreshadowing. This little tiny story tucked away just deep enough into the Bible so that you're never going to get to it if you start with Genesis. <laughs> and far enough back that you're not going to get to it if you're reading the New Testament and you think, I wonder where all this started. It's just hidden in the perfectly wrong spot for you to miss it, but I think it's one of the most important stories in the entire Bible. Because God, you may not be surprised to learn, was right. The people had rejected him as the king. And when the people of Israel say, give us a king like the other nations, what if I told you about how when you see the word nations in the Old Testament, um, what that means? It's, it's, um, the Hebrew word is goyim, uh, which at this point is a sort of a derogatory term for Gentiles, people who are not Jewish. But it just means the nations, the other people. When the people of Israel say, give us what they have, they are rejecting God's election of them as, the, as his chosen people in the first place. They want to be like the, the Gentiles, essentially. They want to have a king, a human king, to take the place of God who was their king. And if you want to continue along in the, this little brief history of politics and biblical times, you will see that when they appoint the king, when Samuel appoints the king, the, the, uh, the Jewish monarchy goes, eh, okay for about three generations and then it falls to utter crap not that it was going great i mean you have saul and david and solomon and if you know your bible you you know that those guys were not exactly like setting the world on fire with their holiness but solomon's sons in this fourth generation of the monarchy had a dispute they couldn't agree on who should be the king and the nation was divided and that started a series of conquests in the Mesopotamian region that is the roots of our faith, and the Jewish faith. If you know your uh, history, your Middle Eastern history, you know there was an Assyrian conquest 
and then a Babylonian conquest, and then a Persian conquest, and then an Alexandrian conquest. And by the time we get to Jesus, what is the political context there? Who has conquered and taken over everything there? Rome. It's the Roman era. And under Roman rule, the Jews were allowed to practice their religion, in, but in sort of a suppressed way. They, they were back in Jerusalem, some of them, and they, they could go to the temple, um, but they had to pay taxes to the emperor of Rome, Caesar, and they were ruled by this puppet king that the emperor had installed, this king of the Jews, so to speak, Herod Antipas. And king Herod in the Bible is uh, you know, not exactly a, a favored character. The Jews are, are sort of living out their faith in this, in this uh, quasi-accepted way in the Roman culture. And so a lot of the events that happen in the Gospels, that is the stories about Jesus, make a lot more sense when you understand that historical political context. Okay? So you're going to read, read the Gospels very differently when you understand that these were Jewish people who'd been conquered and conquered and conquered and the world had turned upside down and they were sort of on their feet in the Roman era, but not quite. They didn't have pride of place the way they once had. Let me give you a couple examples of stories in the Gospels that make more sense when you know this, this culture. Um, I'm going to look at Mark 12. These, are, these references aren't even on the screen. You can just follow along or you can, you can listen along. If you know your Bible real good and want to chase me, you can do that. But Mark 12, 13 through 17. Then they sent to Jesus some Pharisees and some Herodians. Who do you think the Herodians were? Followers of King Herod, essentially. Uh, To trap him in what he said. Um, Rule number one about the New Testament, you can't trap Jesus. It's not going to work. So they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one. They're a bunch of snakes the way they talk to Jesus. For you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. Bring me a coin and let me see it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? Back in those days, as today, there were little engraved heads on the coins which actually was violation of Hebrew law about graven images and things. And that's why they were asking him the question. This Gentile money was unclean. Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, the emperor's, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, well, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. They were trying to trick him into declaring an allegiance either to the Roman Empire, which was not of God, or to this very strict, regimented, rule-based, law-based expression of Judaism. And uh, as always happens when people try to trick Jesus, they ended up looking stupid. That'll happen to you, by the way, too. Try to trick Jesus. Um, so don't. They're trying to, tr- to, to, to trick him into rejecting Caesar, which would have been death for him, and eventually was, or to worshiping him, which would have been 
even worse. There's a second story that makes more sense when you understand that the, the Jews were in this kind of semi-oppressive regime in the Roman Empire. Luke 19, 36 through 40. This is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And you know that funny story where he tells his disciples, go and steal a donkey <laughs> and bring it to me and we'll go in. Um, we, we'll talk about that sometime, uh, I'm sure, during Lent. It's one of our favorite Lenten stories. Uh, but as he rode along, verse 36 of chapter 19, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now, why are they cheering on Jesus and, and, and calling him a king? It's not the title that they've used, they've used for him so far, but they're saying, blessed is the king. He's on this donkey riding into the, the holy city uh, of Jerusalem in the Roman Empire where they were under an oppressive rule by this puppet king that had been set up by the emperor. Do you see what's going on here? These Jewish disciples of Jesus wanted him to be a conquering king, like, like King David, the king who had slaughtered everybody around and taken control of all the land. They wanted Jesus to ride in on a donkey, not to his cross, which is what happened, but, but with a sword, to overthrow this oppressive Roman regime and restore them, the chosen nation of Israel, as the rightful uh, rulers of the holy city of Jerusalem and, and, and the promised land. They, that's how they understood the prophecies about the Messiah. And that is not what Jesus was interested in doing at all. Because the most important text for today comes from the next gospel over in your Bible. And I'd like you to turn to this one if you don't mind. John 18. If you're using a red Bible, it's page 881, the part that we're going to read. John 18:33 Jesus has been arrested and brought before Pilate who was a Roman officer but he was brought before him for Jewish crimes the Pharisees had brought him in had convinced the Roman era to Roman empire to come and arrest him and Pilate is a little bit confused saying why aren't you taking care of him with your laws why have you sent him to me And the answer in verse 31 is, uh, well, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. So please shoehorn him into the Roman legal system. Okay, so verse 33. Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask me this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom 
is not from here. Of course, you know what happens next in these gospel stories. Jesus is sentenced to death on a Roman cross. That was the federal death penalty of his day. His religious opponents having cleverly conflated church and state so that they could eliminate him, or so they thought. Because as the Bible concludes with this vision of the new heaven and new earth, who is the king who is seated on that throne? It is the resurrected Jesus, the sacrificial lamb of God. So that's a brief history of the politics of biblical times. But I want to focus for just a few minutes on that most provocative proclamation in John 18, where Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. I think we're likely to have two problems with that statement. The first problem is that it's a kingdom. We as Americans don't like kings and queens. I mean, monarchy is literally un-American, isn't it? The last king that we had was King George. We didn't like him very much. Besides that, the, 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 besides not liking it historically and politically, we don't get it, do we? This doesn't make sense to us. The only monarchy we know of is really think about very much is the British monarchy, which is, uh, I hope I won't offend anybody by saying this, at this point, nothing but a, a pretty sad tabloid subject. Right? It's Prince Harry in the swimming pool and Princess Kate on the private beach. Right? That is not monarchy the way <laughs> Jesus was imagining it when he said, My king, when I, like, I have a kingdom, it's just not from this world. We don't like kings and queens in America, and even if we did, we wouldn't really have a frame of reference for how to serve them. Monarchy doesn't make sense to us. I mean, the, the, I think the closest we can get to understanding um, the, being a subject to a good and just king who we would actually want to bow our knee to, the, the closest we can get to that is in our stories. And they're actually not our stories, they're England's stories, but uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy give us pictures of kind and gentle and powerful and benevolent ruling kings and queens. But that's fantasy to us. So the first problem with Jesus' statement, that the first problem we have as Americans with Jesus' statement that my kingdom is not from this world is that it's a kingdom in the first place. It doesn't work for us. And the second problem um, is that it's not of this world. We want so desperately for the answers that we seek to be from this world, don't we? We want the solutions to our problems to be attainable by human power and effort. We want policy to bring about justice. We want international cooperation to bring about peace. We want congressmen to be wise and judges to be fair and presidents to be perfect and none of them to be corrupt. And, and, and it's just not going to happen that way. 
Jesus is the hope of the world, and his kingdom is not from the world. So why don't we have a flag in our sanctuary? Well, like I said, as much as we love America, we must realize that America has nothing to do with the gospel we proclaim, the Bible we believe, and most importantly, the king we serve. Loving America more than or as much as we love Jesus is what's known as idolatry. It's not a golden calf, but it is a false god. Placing our hope and our trust in any national ruler or political entity is idolatry. And uh, in my not-so-humble opinion, putting a flag up here where it would tower over the body and blood of Jesus Christ would be idolatry. I love America, but America has nothing to do with the gospel that I proclaim, that we proclaim. It has nothing to do with the Bible that we believe. And most importantly, it has nothing to do with the king who we serve. That king is a king like no other, a king who willingly surrendered all his power and became poor for our sakes. That in his poverty, in his death, he might truly conquer evil and announce the coming of the kingdom of God. By the way, do you know what the most common topic Jesus taught about is? Love? Sin? The kingdom of God. That's the thing he talked about the most. We've got to figure out what that means. He is the king to whom we pray. Which, by the way, is another word that you would associate etymologically with human kings and queens. We pray and beseech and bow before and entreat kings. But we pray to Christ the King, whose kingdom is not from this world. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are our King. We pray that you would forgive us for the times when we make idols out of any number of things around us. Our doctrine, our music, our possessions, our politics. God, we pray that we would be drawn ever closer into the kingdom of heaven, that as we are, we would be pulling it closer so that it would be expressed here on earth by our actions and faith. And we pray during this cacophonous election season that through all the noise and spin, we would hear clearly the voice of your Holy Spirit calling us, yes, to vote our convictions, but so much more than that, to live them out, to be 
not just followers of Jesus, but subjects of King Jesus. And it's in his name, and looking to him for our hope, that we pray these things. Amen. Before we go to communion together, I want to announce something that we're going to do as a church this fall. We are um, going to make one very strong political statement this fall. We're going to take communion together on Election Day. This is a national effort that Artisan's going to be a part of, and there's uh, at least one other church in Rochester that, that uh, has signed up to do this. Um, if you're interested in, in learning more about it, you can go to that website, electiondaycommunion.org. Uh, it's very simply churches committing and announcing that their people, no matter who they go and vote for that day, are going to come together and celebrate communion remembering the thing that really unifies them on one of the most divisive days of the year. Um, now, in an interesting and perhaps ironic twist, Artisan Church is a polling place <laughs> for our neighborhood. People will be casting their votes in this building <laughs> until 9 or 10 that night. Um, so we may have to go somewhere else to do it. Uh, New Hope uh, Free Methodist Church is the other one in Rochester so far that's doing it. We may go join them. Uh, but we'll figure something out. But we are going to take communion together on Election Day, um, which I think is a, one, of the, one of the coolest things that we could do. Um, this is going to be our big political statement, that no matter who wins the presidency, our allegiance is to Christ the King. Amen? Amen. All right. Um, and now, uh, I'd invite you to come celebrate communion together. We're going to continue to sing some songs and worship in that way. Our kids will be coming back shortly. Uh, they can take communion with you if you'd like to have them do that. Uh, at Artisan, we have an open table. Anybody who's following Jesus can take communion here. Just tear off a piece of the bread. You can dip it in either the wine or the juice. We have both, whatever is more appropriate for you and for your family. Um, and uh, we talk about communion in, in a few different ways every week. We talk about how it is a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for us. We talk about how it is food for our souls, it is spiritual nourishment, and we talk about how it's an act of unity. And uh, just like last week when we were talking about doctrine, today we're talking about politics. Let's think about that third way, maybe especially, and as you come to the table, you can look uh, to your right or to your left at that person and think, no matter who he or she is going to vote for, uh, I love that person, and I am in community with that person through the sacrifice of Christ of which we are partaking together. Right. So respond uh, according to the, the voice of the Holy Spirit and take communion if you will. Let's continue to worship him together. <laughs>